And I remember after a scene, John Larroquette gave me a big hug and I can hear my father in the audience say, he's hugging my son. I could hear his voice come through the crowd. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Welcome to Tell Me About Your Father. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. I'm Erin Hosier. Today we have an exciting episode. We spoke Aaron, back in February, we recorded an interview with the actor Ray Abruzzo, who we became a fan of and fascinated by when we dedicated four episodes of Tell Me About Your Father to discussing all of The Sopranos. Ray Abruzzo is the actor who plays little Carmine Lupertazzi on The Mm -hmm. Sopranos super pivotal character Mm -hmm. um, and kind of a comedic character. So that's how he got on our radar and we started following him on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. And one day we stumbled across this tribute that he had made to his father on Instagram, his late father, Mm -hmm. who would have been turning 106. And we reached out and he generously agreed to come on the show and tell us the story about the time he went back to Italy, back to Sicily to, you know, investigate his roots. He is a lifelong New Yorker. You'll hear all about his coming of age in Queens, the son of his dad was kind of a Renaissance man, like a working class second generation Italian-American who owned a liquor store, but then also had a bit of a renaissance later in life where he became a painter and, and traveled. And so it's an interesting story of a supportive dad, a very supportive dad. It is a story of a supportive dad. And I think Ray could sense growing up that his dad had this other side to him and was also very creative and loved to improvise, was an artist and that storyteller, a storyteller and that how lucky Ray felt that by the time he was able to have a career in the 70s and 80s, that his parents supported him in being the struggling artist, actor, etc. And 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 also the thing about Ray that's interesting is that he ended up being on some of the hugest shows of the 80s, like iconic. L.A. Law, Dynasty, Night Court. Like these were shows that were the biggest shows ever at the time. But interestingly enough about Ray, he started his career in the sort of extremely arty East Village theater scene, you know, working out of companies like La Mama Playhouse, etc. So he ran from this like really avant background into playing like hunky cops on primetime television and then through the decades also on 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 stuff you wouldn't expect like the sopranos playing a mobster like transparent playing you know the formerly incarcerated boyfriend of alexandra billings character on that show i mean it's a real repertoire it is he's super talented 
He's been in a million things. We were so lucky to talk to him. And he's also so funny. Be sure to stay till the end. Ray's father's storytelling skills were clearly passed down to Ray himself as he tells this incredible tale of meeting a woman at the gym and how that comes full circle to him going to his grandfather's gravesite in Sicily in a very small town. It's it's just incredible how it all comes together. Um, mm-hmm. Here's more from our mellifluous conversation <laughs> with Ray Abruzzo. For the purposes of our show, I did notice that you had appearances on the show Dads and then another oh, yeah. movie called I Hate Kids. <laughs> so these are just like yes. thematic <laughs> things we look for. Oh, I get it. Oh, I got it. I forgot the name of this podcast for a second. I thought it was about me. <laughs> it's about you, but it's also about where you come from. And you're really moving, yeah. you know, Instagram post that was like a tribute to your late father. It says on your Wikipedia that you went to Christ the King Regional High School, which is a very strongly named institution. Very. I think it's a Catholic <laughs> school. I'm not sure. Well, I also went to Resurrection Ascension Grammar School. Get out. I don't know if you're Catholic, but that has two holy days of obligation <laughs> in the title. And then just to get away from that, I went to St. John's University. I'm amazed that I'm even functioning, a functioning human being after 16 years of Catholic school. But. Well, tell us about growing up in Queens, right? Because you are fourth generation. My parents were born in the United States, but all four of my grandparents were born in Sicily. And even my mother's eldest siblings were born in Sicily. So, and my grandfather, my father's father uh, died in Sicily. That's a whole other story we could get to because I went back to find his grave and that was one of the most emotional and meaningful experiences probably of my life. We lived in an apartment building in Queens, in Rigo Park, Queens, and I have an older brother and an older sister. It was two bedrooms, one bath. Well, we originally were even in a smaller apartment. Then when I was a baby that we moved across the street to a little bigger, to two bedrooms. And my father converted the, uh, the little dinette area with louver panels into a bedroom for my sister. And then my older brother and I shared a bedroom. So yeah, that's, we grew up in that apartment on, in Rigo Park with the five of us. Yeah. My father. He worked two jobs and my mother always worked right after she gave birth. She went back to work. Wow. And my grandmother lived in the apartment building directly across the street, which is where we originally lived. From the time I was little, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother who was Sicilian. Did you grow up speaking Italian? No, it was such an odd thing. You know, they really tried to not speak Italian to us and they would use Italian. Well, they spoke it. My grandparents spoke a Sicilian dialect. And um, they would kind of use it when they didn't want us to know what they were talking about. But it's, uh, I mean, my grandmother, you know, she spoke a broken English as did my grandfather. And somehow I try to look back at that sometimes and wonder how we did communicate so well. But I do remember, I remember a story. I was home alone with her, I guess maybe five or six years old. And my mother worked and she was at our house that time taking care of me and she was cooking. Often she would prepare the meals. And, uh, I remember she kept asking me, where are the Hyans? Where are the Hyans? And I'm, you know, five or six, and I have no idea what she's talking about. And she started getting very frustrated that she wanted Hyans. So I brought out the iron. I thought maybe she wanted to iron some clothes because she would do that. 
And finally, I just called my mother at work, which, you know, I normally didn't do. And they spoke into, she wanted onions. And for some reason, I, I was probably five, but I remember being so panicked because she was getting very frustrated and I really wanted to help her. And I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> but if I ever hear high and say, I'll know she means onions. Anybody needs onions. <laughs> so if anybody's listening that speaks as only Sicilian. What, what did your dad do for a career? He was a, a liquor salesman. And then he also worked at Yonkers Racetrack at night. Mm -hmm. So he worked two jobs. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, it occurred, it occurred to me today because I had a feeling you were going to ask something. I was thinking, wow, those are two, you know, 1920s era illegal activities. Yeah. But uh, my father always walked the straight and narrow and uh, he sold mm -hmm. legal booze and, and worked as a paramutual clerk at Yonkers Racetrack wow. uh, for 35 years, I think, worked two jobs. And then we also had a family liquor store. A period of time, he opened up a liquor store in the Bronx. Uh, he got ripped off by his partner and that, that failed. But my mother's father always had a liquor store in the East Village on East 11th Street and First Avenue, where I spent much of my youth. And we all worked there. And my father worked there. We'd always work Christmases. So Christmas Eve was always, you know, the whole family working in the liquor store, delivering. And all that is it still stuff. there? No, you know, it was, it was there until I was in college. And then at that point, my brother was kind of running it. My grandfather had passed away. And it's on East 11, you know where Vineros is? You know where Vineros? It was right next door to Vineros. It was Vineros, a pork shop, the liquor store, and on the corner was a pizzeria, which is my first slice of pizza. I think Roses, I think is the name. Yeah. So anyway, in, when I was in college, I remember getting a phone call. The building collapsed. My brother was yeah. working there. The whole back wall collapsed, fell out. So the building was still standing, but there was no back wall. And even the shelf, some of the shelves were still standing, but you could see through because it all collapsed. So I got all of my friends from college. I played in a band at the time and we filled up and the band had a van. We filled up all our cars and everything with all the booms from, we had to empty out the liquor store in one day because yeah. there was no walls and you couldn't just leave it. And we brought it all to, at that point we had moved to Middle Village, which is right next to Rigo Park in Queens. And we just unloaded it in my house. And so we had a, a full liquor store in our house for quite some, and that was the end of the liquor business for my family. Although. When I got out of college, I did work at another liquor store in that same neighborhood. This for is your birthright. I guess so. I, uh, you know, I, it was kind of an easy thing to do. You knew people certainly within the neighborhood and other stores. And I moved to the East Village to be an actor. I ended up moving back to where my family had originally settled. And um, so I worked in that liquor store for years because it was kind of, a, I wanted a job that I could just do, make some money, a little money, but it didn't take any of my. You know, I could just work the hours and leave, not take a job home with me since I was trying to be an actor. Because before that, I had like a real job when I got out of college. And uh, I just, I, an event happened. I was sick and I thought I was going to die. And I thought, I remember driving the king, you know, if I die and they write this obituary, I don't want, you know, young Ray Abruzzo, liquor salesman dies. So I, I went in that Friday and I quit. I said, if I die, I'm going to die, you know, struggling actor. Oh, well, that answers a big question. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't die. Uh, if that's, if you, the end of the story is, uh, it was okay. And I was healthy and it was, not, it was nothing. But you started acting in high school, right? Yes, I did. For the usual reasons I've read, like to make girls laugh and because theater is where it's at? Pretty much. I guess I was kind of always attracted to it, to music and, and acting. But then my freshman year in high school, you had to sign up for an extracurricular activity yeah. and I didn't know what I was going to do. And my friend were going to try out for all different things. We were walking down the hallway and each classroom had a different club or something. And I looked into the auditorium that said auditions today. And the first row was filled with some 
very pretty girls. So mm -hmm. I told my friends, you guys go ahead. I'm going in here. And I auditioned for the play and I got the part and that was it. What did your parents think? Were they surprised? I don't think so. My father kind of always dabbled. I think he always had mm -hmm. aspirations to be an entertainer or do something. You know, I think they thought it was a hobby. I, I'm pretty sure they had wished at that point that I wouldn't think of it as a career. But they certainly enjoyed and they were very supportive of, you know, my high school and college yeah. plays, for sure. Even years later, when I first started on the, the Sopranos, I just got cast to do a couple of episodes, but I was just finishing having done six years on the practice. And it was Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm thinking, well, this is okay. I'm, you know, the practice is ending, and I'm going on to the Sopranos. It's not so bad. And we're Thanksgiving dinner, and my mother says, you know, Raymond, I've been thinking about it, <laughs> Raymond. Um, maybe you should get your real estate license so you have something to fall back on, <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay, I've already been doing this 30 years or so. I, uh, I'm going on to a show with The Sopranos, which is, you know, it was the fourth season. So it was already, you know, pretty popular and finishing the practice, which had won numerous Emmys. And, and now years later, I'm thinking, yeah, she was probably right. Maybe I could have used a little real estate. No, money. no, but no way. Here we are. So your dad had a creative side as well, right? Yes, he did. He always strived to do something creative. You know, he always used to tell stories and he, my father had a way of telling stories. He'd stand like this and he'd say, you know, um, my cousin Sam and I, we used to do these skits on the beach and everybody would gather around and we would just improvise extemporaneously. I always remember he used to say improvise extemporaneously, which I always thought was very funny. Uh, so I think he always had a desire, but you know, you come out of World War II and then he had to get a job and he hadn't started a family. And so I think he put all that by the wayside, but he always had a creative bent. Like, you know, he want, always wanted to be a painter and he always admired, you know, he always sang along with Sinatra and everything. So I think he had that creative sensibility, but, you know, due to the times and, and his upbringing and everything, he just never really pursued it. Where was he stationed during the war? Well, actually, it, he... Signed up uh, with the Army Air Corps at the time. It was before there was the Air Force because he wanted to be a pilot, but he had asthma, so he couldn't be a pilot. So he ended up becoming a radio technician or something like that. Yep. And he actually, he was married to my mother at the time. He ended up in, uh, he never left. He was in um, Texas, Pio, Texas, I think. And they lived there. And my mother also worked at that point for the military because she had secretarial skills. She was a secretary. So she went to live with him there and she was assigned to filling out the last will and testaments and all the paperwork before they shipped wow. off to war. So she would help them fill out all their, all their paperwork in case anything should happen. I wish I had talked to her more about that because there are probably some interesting stories. That whole like writing the letter that you're going to keep in your pocket, right? Yeah, right. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you had sort of a normal coming of age. You know, when I was very early, I thought perhaps I wanted to be a lawyer when I was much younger. And my mother's older brother was a lawyer and, and a judge at, at some point. So I, that, those, that was the aspiration my mother always had for me, mm. was to be a lawyer. Even though I was really already seriously bitten by the acting bug by the time I went to college. And I was playing in a band at the time in high school. We were doing pretty well. We were playing a lot, just neighborhood gigs. And, but we were busy. So I didn't want to go away to college because we were still playing. But then as soon as I got to St. John's, I started doing so much more acting and working in the theater that I left the band and made the choice at that point to do the acting as opposed to the, the music. But my mother still thought I was always going to go to law school. But 
I'm glad she's not watching because I think she might have died thinking I was a lawyer. So <laughs> it's funny when I finally got onto LA Law in the 80s, you know, that was okay. a great show, groundbreaking show. I've been fortunate that way. Um, she was very glad that I was on a legal show. Playing a lawyer. Yeah, playing a lawyer. And then, I, you know, and then I played several lawyers at Boston Legal and a bunch of other shows. So that kind of filled her up a little bit enough to realize it was okay. And I had read that you were a writer early on and you wrote on a show, mm -hmm. Wienerville for Nickelodeon? Yes, I was actually the head writer. Excuse me. The head writer on Wienerville, which is interesting because the main puppets <laughs> were just heads too. I'd never made that connection before. So I was the heads, heads writer and producer. I did a lot of the, some of the directing and some of the puppet work. It was such a strange thing to be thrown into that. And I'd already been, you know, on television a bit. It was crazy because it was a wraparound cartoon show. So we would just be shooting segments with a theme that ran through the whole thing. But we'd sometimes do four or five shows a wow. day in front of a live audience. And I was producing it as well. It was pretty hectic and it was Orlando in the summer and it was hot, but it was a fun time. When was yeah. Wienerville on? I know exactly because when it left, my father just had a stroke. Oh. This is going to tie in beautifully to you guys. Uh, so right when the show ended, so that was 93 and 94, because my father passed away in 94. And I remember I left, I went from Florida. I was supposed to come back to LA and I went up to New York to be with my father and spent a few months there before he passed away. How's that for a segment? How did he die? He had a, a series of strokes and he was doing okay. And I finally got him into a rehab hospital and they only take you if your health yes. is good at that point. And they were just going to do rehab, you know, cause he couldn't really speak and he sure. needed physical help. And, uh, he was literally there two days and then I got a call that he passed away. That's so sudden. Yeah. I mean, cause we really thought, okay, he's going to get through this. It's going to be a struggle. And, uh, you know, I remember clearly the. The last time I saw him, you know, it was all very emotional and, you know, I left him laughing, which was one of the, one of the great things I hold on to this many years later is that I remember the last thing I said, I told him a joke and he threw his head back oh. and he's laughed and I said, thank you and good night. And I walked out of his hospital, his rehab room. And the next morning I got the call that he had passed away and I was like, you know, years later I realized, wow, I left him laughing. The last thing I said to him, he was laughing and I thought, well, that's, uh, that's okay. I can, I can, I can cope with that. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. he died so early in your career. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems, yeah, he's, I can't, it's, it's shocking to me that it's what, 28 years ago, um, in June it'll be 28 years. Some of it seems, you know, just like yesterday, I have so many memories, you know, we had about six months there. We were struggling with the strokes and I, I was doing all the things you have to do when somebody's kind of debilitated like that. But it's a time I would never give away. I'm, I was really glad I did it. And then after he died, it took about a year to get a lot of those images out of your head and to remember him more the way he was. Yeah. The better times. So Ugh, we can relate to that part. Yeah, it's something we're all going to relate to. I mean, there's, you know, it's a club you join and you know what, eventually just about everybody's going to be in that club. Just happens to some people earlier than us. I mean, I was turning 40 at the time. I know you're doing the math right now. What? <laughs> 28 years ago. It's 40. Yes. You look 40 now. Thank God this is. Oh, I have that 40 filter. Well, it's Th the Sicilian <laughs> filter. One of my dearest friends is Sicilian, and she, you know, she's you like might permanently be right. 22. You, you, not quite 22, but. But that's, uh, but that's a great point, Ray, about like. I lost my dad a few years ago. Erin lost her dad in her early 20s, but 
had these experiences of losing them where they were hospitalized, they were incapacitated, they were hooked up to machines. And like, it, mm. I've never heard anyone put it that way, that it does take a year or even longer to like have that not be the image, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the most difficult time for, for that year. And it was the, you know, kind of flashbacks, not to be like a theatrical cliche, but, um, you would get these kind of flashbacks and I would just see some of the yeah. worst, most difficult times, things I had to do that you, you know, you really don't want to have to do for your mm -hmm. father, but I did. And, uh, it takes a while to get past that and then just start remembering the stuff beforehand. Yeah. Did you take time off from work afterwards? Yeah. Because as an actor, how does it work when you're grieving and you're also in a job where you're drawing from emotions, you have to be in control and yet. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's hard for me to even remember. I'm sure, I know I took time off to be with him when he was, when he was sick and after he passed away, I'm pretty sure I would have taken anything that came up. I don't think I deliberately turned right. anything down during the grieving. I think uh, at that point, you know, there've been several times in my life when you go through these, these downturns, whether it's personal or professional and you feel a little depressed and for me, the thing that will pop me out of those, those moments are work. You know, I remember, uh, after the Sopranos was really a difficult time for me because, you know, I'd been working in TV for years and then the Sopranos ended and literally work stopped for me. Everybody thought, oh, it's just, you're just going to keep working. It's like, well, the jobs I used to get playing cops and lawyers, all of a sudden I wasn't getting those jobs because they said, well, he has this whole mobster thing, which was strange because I had never played a mobster before the Sopranos. So there was, you know, it was a double-edged sword. People would know me from the Sopranos, but then they'd know me from the Sopranos. So I didn't work for a while. I kind of was getting, you know, falling into a little funk thinking, how could, yeah. how could this be, you know? And you'd see other people that were on the show working like crazy, but they were the bigger name people. So, uh, but then I got a part in a play out here, a great play at the Pasadena Playhouse, a big, beautiful theater, great, great role. And uh, the minute I started rehearsal, it was like, okay, it was just... I just felt so much better about myself and it was a difficult yeah. play, but, um, but just being hired and being able to really dive into, to work really and helps. And part of that, I imagine has to do with like the family environment of working as an actor on a play. Well, you know, it is a cliche, but we all say it, you know, we're like family. There's, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's a, a piece we did for Sopranos called making the making of Cleaver. And it's just, it's just a behind the scenes and they called Michael Imperioli and, and myself and the young actor that played the director. So they said, just sit down. And they had chairs with our characters' names on it, Carmine Lupitazzi, yeah. producer, whatever. And they had us sit down and they, we did it literally while they were shooting the Cleaver scenes as if we were right. on the set. And they said, we're just going to talk to you as, and you just stay in character. There's no preparation. Michael and I hadn't even spoken about it. We just said, oh, I, how you doing? Sat down. And it's really funny, but at one point I, I do say that, you know, if we ever win any awards, you know, I know it's a cliche, but we really are like a family. <laughs> no pun intended. Whenever people end the show, there's always like, you know, we're like a family, but you're, it's hard not to be. You know, it's one of the requirements of being an actor is that forced intimacy that you have. Even in acting class, that's why as a young actor, everybody, there's so many affairs going on, you know, everybody, because you meet somebody for the first time and then the teacher puts you together and what do you do next? They come up to your apartment and you want to be liked. You want to develop a chemistry. So everybody's putting their 
best foot forward and being flirtatious yeah. and and uh, there's this forced intimacy. I have friends that I maybe I think that I worked with them for a long time. Then we'll look back and say, you know, we only mm -hmm. shot for a week. 35 years ago and we're still friends and have this kind of mm -hmm. connection you know and it's because there's a shared experience you're together 8 12 16 hours a day and you're all working for the same thing and um, sometimes you make out mm -hmm. yes i've uh in, in my younger <laughs> more uh leading man days i did some some making out on television can we break away from daddy issues for a second <laughs> and talk about what that's like crying on demand kissing on demand you're a human being but actors get to be other human beings in pretend circumstances but it must feel to your body kind of the same right you know the, I, I i've always been interested in that not just for yeah. the love making scenes i was on dynasty in the 80s we want to hear <laughs> about that i've always been interested in what happens to the brain and the emotions. If you're doing a play, for instance, and you have a very violent scene or an emotional scene and you're crying and you're angry yeah. and you have a fight scene, physically, everything's happening to you as if it's really happening. Your face is getting red, you're sweating, you're breathing heavy, all the physiological things that happen if you're really going through those emotions, because if you're a good actor, hopefully you're really going through those emotions. But yet there's a part of your brain saying, now if I swing, you know, I have to stop. I can't hit Aaron. I can't, you know, I can't hit Elizabeth. Whoever you're acting with, you know that you can't do it. So oh. there's another part of your brain that is 100% aware that you're performing, yet physiologically, because you always say how stress is bad for your health. And, and I always wonder if it does affect your body long-term or the same way since you're going through those yeah. emotions. I've always been fortunate that the minute the curtain comes down, I'm capable of just shedding it and walking away until, you know, half hour before a curtain. But I know some actors that don't, you know, it kind of, it kind of lingers. And, you know, I think I just read an article recently about Gandolfini mm. about his character was so intense and so deep for so many years and all those long hours that it does, it does take its physical toll. That's why people always eventually just say, I just need to shed this character. I just yeah. can't do it anymore. You wonder how people walk away from certain shows. But uh, yeah, I think Brian Cranston said the same thing. You know, you can only go to those dark places often enough. Because if you're a good actor, like those two in particular, you really are going to those dark places. Ooh, yeah. So, so love scenes. <laughs> love scenes. How about the fun part <laughs> of the love scene? Well, they could be fun, but you know, just as you go to kiss, they're saying, Ray, you're, you know, you got kind of a nose there. You were worried about your shadow. <laughs> could you go to the other side? Your nose is casting a shadow on her face. Go to the other side. Uh, so it becomes a little technical. You got to kind of just fake it. But sometimes you're just forced to this intimacy. I'm, you know, uh, I was on a show called uh, Transparent. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that too. That was a wonderful experience. And the first day I met Alexandra Billings, you know, we had to have, you know, be comfortable. Like we've been together for 20 and it's literally our first day meeting. We're laying on the couch, watching TV, hugging and kissing. And it's, you know, that sometimes is a credit to yeah. the other actor. Sometimes it just, it just works and there's a chemistry and, uh, you just have to kind of push through the fact that there's so many people around. Well, I wanted to ask one more question about acting and being an actor. Busy and I both come from like the publishing and media worlds, and I'm a writer and an agent mm -hmm. for writers. And also we've collectively dated and been single in New York for 20 years. So we know about rejection. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the only people that I feel like know just as much or more about rejection are actors. Oh, we know more because 
But we also have personal lives too. So we're rejected personally yes. and professionally. So, so the same yep. ones you had, you know, we all had too. Although I've never been rejected by a woman. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, there were plenty of times. Anyway. But like, how do you deal? That's the hardest thing. That is the single hardest thing because the amount of times that you get rejected compared to yeah, the times right. you get accepted, it, it's astronomical. It's not even like, oh, you know, 50, 50. It's like a hundred to one. Right. I would hate to tell my parents that I was up for anything because mm -hmm. then the fall, did you get it? Did you hear anything? And then you have to tell them, no, I didn't hear anything. And when I wouldn't get a big job, my mother would always say, well, it's saving you for something better. And I was like, yeah, for a while that sounds good. But then you realize, no, that was better. And that was the perfect yeah. job for me. And that's the job that would have changed my career. So no, nothing better. And then she'd always say, well, you know what? It's their loss. Aww. And I'd say, well, they seem to be taking it very well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, the rejection's horrifying. And then you have to deal with rejection in your real life. I mean, I can't even stand when you go to one of those vending machines and you put in a dollar and it kicks it out. <laughs> that kind of rejection. I can't take it. But did your dad prepare you for that? Like, did you feel like you had a healthy-ish ego because he was a storyteller, you're a storyteller? Yeah, but um, they worried like every parent that, how am I going to get by, you know, yeah. and all that kind of thing and financially and the security and all that. But they were very, always very supportive of the work that I did and me trying to do it. I, I'm sure there were times they wished, okay, enough is enough. You know, it hasn't happened. It's time to give up, which my mother said yeah, when I was on The Sopranos and the practice. You know, I think if you have a secure home life, which I basically did, you know, wasn't perfect, but um, I really don't remember having bad times with my father. And if that helped me in dealing with rejection and everything else, which it probably did, gave me a sense of security and a sense of being loved regardless, you know, the unconditional love. I had that from him, so I've never really thought about it, but I'm sure that doesn't hurt in dealing with the rejection and everything else that comes with it. So you grow up, you're going to these conservative, you know, Catholic schools. It's a traditional, it sounds like traditional Italian-American family. Your dad owned a liquor store. You worked in the liquor store. And then you start doing kind of avant-garde theater in downtown in the East Village in the 70s. La Mama, for listeners at home, La Mama is like a very arty yes. performance art. Yeah, the performance garage. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting pipeline to go from La Mama to L.A. law. Like, that, yeah. that happened. And what was that like? I was at La Mama because they became a home for Bond Street Theater Coalition. They gave us space to rehearse and to perform there. So that was my connection to La Mama. We were doing street theater as well as work, working the La Mama. And then I left because I was also drawn to more conventional acting. And uh, I was going to the Neighborhood Playhouse at the same time I was working with the Bond Street Theater Coalition, which, and the, the, the approaches couldn't be more different. What were your parents thinking when you were doing like performance art in the East Village in the 70s? <laughs> what was, were they supportive? I remember I worked with another theater group and we worked on Waiting for Godot <laughs> for two years before we even performed it. <laughs> Literally two years working on the physicality of it. And, and I remember they came to see it and they were like, what? What is that? But they came and they clapped and they applauded and they said I was wonderful. So you go from the East Village to then like the hugest shows on television. You were on Dynasty, yeah. OMG, you were on Dynasty. Then you were on LA Law, but you were also on Night Court. 
and these are all shows people listening yeah. will uh, will know these shows right. from their childhoods, especially no, like, those these shows. are huge shows in the eighties and syndicated. My parents yeah. watched Night Court religiously. Your parents must have been so proud of you. Well, at Night Court, they were very excited about Night yeah. Court in particular. They were actually out in L.A. at the time for one of my episodes, not the first one, but one of them. So they came to the, the taping of it. You know, it's taped in front of a live audience. And I remember after a scene, John Larroquette gave me a big hug and I can hear my father in the audience say, he's hugging my son. He's hugging my son. I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. I, I, I am so glad you brought it up because I literally have not thought about that moment in, well, it's over 30 years. You know, maybe it's crossed my mind a couple of times. But just when you said that, I remembered that they came to the, the taping. He's he, hugging my son is like even better than he's hugging <laughs> me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, you know, it was John Larry This you know, it was after one of our big scenes. And I guess he just Aww. gave me a big hug. And, uh, and I could hear his voice come through the crowd. Yeah. I brought them to the set of Dynasty. That was one what of my was that like? favorite. Oh, it was great. So, you know, that, this was their first time ever on a, on a set. It was obviously very meaningful for them because after my father passed away, maybe 15 years or so after Dynasty, I was going through his drawer and I found his, the little drive-on pass that he had, you know, just handwritten by the security guard, you know, Mr. Abruzzo. <laughs> I think they spelled it wrong, two Bs, one Z. That's what right. you think, you know, and a drive-on you know, for, uh, to go, to get on the set for Dynasty. And he kept that little, tiny little piece of paper. Elizabeth, remember when we started making this podcast? Boy, do I. It was two years ago. Can you believe that? Two years. Oh, I can, because we were just so focused on getting it right and learning all these programs, right? Oh. To try to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. If only we had heard about Anchor by Spotify. It's so easy. It makes everything better because it's all in one place. Everything you need. It allows you to record and edit the podcast right from your phone or computer. Tell me about the hosting capabilities. Oh my gosh. You can upload that thing to any of the platforms, including Apple. How much is it? It's absolutely free. What? If only we'd known that part a couple years ago. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, we did a bunch of Sopranos episodes, and one of the reasons we're really excited to have you on is because little Carmine, you know, he came on later in the season in the Sopranos, but we had um, Matt Solar Seitz and Alan Seppenwall who wrote the Sopranos sessions and have written so much about the show. Mm -hmm. In the Sopranos sessions' book about the series, they say that your character is probably one of the most important characters, at least in helping Tony to sort of see that there was like another way to be. Yeah. The character mm -hmm. was really significant. How did you, you know, can you talk about like getting on the show and how that happened and how you sort of developed the character over the years? Because he's a bit of a dum-dum, but I think the show is really interesting because some of, I think, the characters that viewers came to see is like, uh, they don't really know what they're talking about. We're actually major truth tellers. I'm thinking of AJ too. Right. How did Little Carmine come to be and how did you kind of make him your own over the years? 
it was totally obviously one of the great experiences of my life. I was just talking to Mary Ann Leone this morning, who we were in acting class together uh -huh. in the 70s. Um, she's married to a brilliant actor, Chris Cooper. They met in the same acting class. But anyway, uh, she played Christopher's mother yeah. on the show. And uh, just this morning she wrote to me, I can't believe we never had a scene together because we were mm -hmm. friends in the 70s, you know? And then we were on The Sopranos together. And the only scene we were ever in together was Christopher's funeral. Um, and I told her that the first part I auditioned for was the guy that did the intervention with Christopher, which was mm -hmm. one of her big scenes, you know? And I didn't get that part. And you talk about yeah. rejection because I thought I did a great job. I, had to, I was living out in LA and I had to put myself on tape. And in those days it was right. VHS tape and you'd have to FedEx it. By 4.30, I'd have to get to the FedEx office so they'd have it by the next morning. Your own audition, paying for all the postage. Oh, it was it was insane. You know, I borrowed a camera that was a compact VHS, so then I had to borrow somebody else's machine to transfer Ugh. it to VHS. And then I didn't get the part. And they said, David Chase liked you, maybe something in the future. And I thought, oh, my, if I hear that, you know, it's like my mother always <laughs> said, they're saving you for something better. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, no. And after 30 years, I don't buy that anymore. It's never happened. I was very depressed that I didn't get that part, going back to rejection. You know, it was only one scene, but everybody remembers that a really remarkable scene. And the actor, Elias, who did it was, was terrific in it. Uh, but they said, no, David Chase really likes you, maybe something in the future. So then a couple of weeks later, I get a call. David wants you to put yourself on tape again for part uh, Little Carmine. Said he's anything but little, twitching profusely, sweating, upwards of 350 pounds, something like that. And I thought, you know, uh, come on. And I called my agent, I said, this is a mistake. They said, no, they checked with the casting director. David Chase specifically asked for you to put yourself on tape for this. So they gave me a little breakdown and they said, you know, he's red sub, he dabbles, that he's not as smart as he thinks he is. That was the only real clue. So uh, in the audition, I thought I have to make up mine. I mispronounced Versailles as Versailles. Nice. And um, that kind of got me the part, you know. And then from then on, they just ran with it. And it was really a great job because I didn't have to work that hard. The writing was so damn good. You know, I, I remember I had a scene where I had this line. Uh, um, the question is, will I be as successful as a boss as my dad was? And I will be even more so. But until I am, it's going to be hard to verify that I think I'll be more effective. <laughs> the fundamental question is, will I be as effective as a boss like my dad was? And I will be, even more so. But until I am, it's going to be hard to verify that I think I'll be more effective. And I, I still remember, because you really had to memorize a line like that. Sometimes I didn't even know what he was trying to say. So I remember going up to the writer, Terry Winter, the most brilliant writer of television, in my totally. opinion. Uh, and I, he said, just say it. And I thought, okay, I'll just say it with all the conviction. And that just became the thing. He just, whatever the words were, I just said it with kind of a truth and conviction. Oh, like, you know, we're in this fucking stagmire. Stagmire. <laughs> Come on, it's a beautiful word. You know? But I just, I just said it. He knows what he's talking about. We're in a fucking stagmire. How to get to this? Retaliation, counterattacks. We're in a fucking stagmire. And the truth is, even though it's not a word, it's pretty true. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He always really, you were right, Elizabeth. He does speak the truth, which gets us back to that scene, I think, that you're talking about. Stage where, five, um, the golf course. Yeah. Where he tells Tony, yeah, where he tells Tony about what's really important in life. And he turns down becoming boss. I just posted about it yesterday for Valentine's Day. 
because he really did have the best um, home life relationship too, mm -hmm. little Carmine, you know, because he came to realize what was important in life wasn't, as he says in the scene, it's not about being boss, it's about being happy. And his wife convinced them she didn't want to be the wealthiest widow on Long Island, so he yeah. walks away from being boss. Um, but, you know, little Carmine, even though he used the wrong words, he was always, always right mm -hmm. in looking at the situation. You really can't find out where he was wrong. Even in the very first scene where he sits with Tony, the sit down with Tony in, um, in Florida, which right. was a whole other thing, to shoot my first scene with Gandolfini Ooh. at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami when I'm cast in LA and I didn't even know anybody. And there were hundreds of extras and two, 300 people outside just watching because we shot like in the middle of the night after they closed the restaurant. So it's just people watching, and you know, yeah. the presence that Gandolfini yeah. has. And here it is. Just the two of us. But that's not the first time you appear in the entire show, right? Yes, it is. Oh, wow. Yes, it is. Yeah. He goes down to Miami to see if I could talk my father into making a deal on, on something. That's the first time we meet uh, Little Carmine. And you know, we have that, you know, that great speech about Louis to whatever's finance. And the reason I say Louis to whatever's finance minister who built this chateau that even outshone Versailles where the king lived, in the end, Louis clapped him in irons. That's the line. And he's talking about Johnny Sack, right? And he's saying, you know, Johnny Sack kind of lives above his means. He thinks he's the boss when he's not. And I think I say, true, he's a pragmatist, but he's also a greedy motherfucker, you know? Um, so he was really right about Johnny Sack mm -hmm. at that moment. His opinion of Johnny Sack was correct right until right. the end. He was always right about, even to little moments when I arrive in Los Angeles with Christopher, for the Cleaver meeting with Ben Kingsley, we, we pull up in front of the hotel and I say, what are you going to do? He says, I, and I say, you know, what I usually do is I usually just drop off my bags and I head for a drink, but I'm not going to do that. And Christopher says, why? He says, well, you know, I know your little Carmine says, you know, I know you're going through the program. And so he purposely doesn't do that. Right. In deference to the challenges that Christopher's going through. Right. You're the most thoughtful of the mobsters, for sure. You don't shame Christopher for his sobriety journey. No, I even supportive of it. And you cop to Tony right away about, like, crying. Yes, that's huge, too. We're definitely going to play a clip from Malefulos. Oh, <laughs> uh, Malefulos box. There was a time I was obsessed with being in charge. You remember. Right. So do it. One night around then, I had this dream. It's my pop's 100th birthday, even though he'd been dead for years. The whole family's there, grandkids, everybody. He's wearing one of these gold paper crowns, like a Burger King. Anyway, I give him his present, this mellifluous box, ribbons. He opens it up, then looks at me. This gaze of absolute disappointment. There's nothing in the box, so he hands it back to me. Go fill it up, he says. Come back when I'm 200. So go for it, Carmine. Fulfill that part of yourself. We have this ritual in my house for years. Our kids are in boarding school. Every night I come home from work, I strip down, jump naked in the pool. Nicole brings me a scotch and water. We sit, relax a little talk. I go up to bed, the air conditioning. She brings me a light dinner and a tray. One night during all that fighting with John, I come home, I'm exhausted. So tired, so tense, I skip the pool. I go right upstairs, flop on the bed. Nicole comes up with the drink. She says, darling, I think it's time you took a rest. I 
say, I'm gonna, we're gonna take a vacation. She says, that's not what I meant. I don't want to be the wealthiest widow on Long Island. I want you to quit now. I'm not ashamed to say that she made me cry. That wonderful, loving woman. That dream with my father, the empty box. Wasn't about being boss. It's about being happy. That's one of the most beautifully written scenes, I it think, is, in the eh? show. And it even echoes in the very last scene because, you know, it's about being happy. And even AJ says something. Dad, I remember you said we have to remember these great moments. And if you see Tony's face, Jimmy's face, when I mm -hmm. talk about my wife doesn't want to be the wealthiest widow on the line, he's just like, is that even possible? Could somebody love someone more than their position and their money and the success and the house that he's going to buy them? She really loves right. little Carmine beyond those things, you know? I think that changes Tony for the rest of the show, but that's my opinion. Um, so there's a scene where I go to Tony and I'm trying to get him to go see uh, Phil and make amends with Phil after their alteration that he had. Alteration. <laughs> but the first thing I do is I sit down and I ask him about AJ. Yeah. How are things with AJ? Because mm -hmm. AJ has just tried to kill himself. And he doesn't do it the way those other guys do, Paulie, where they're kind of just, you know, stroking Tony. He really, really cares, you know, about what Tony's feeling, what Tony's yeah. going through at that time. And he's also very self-aware because in the mellifluous scene, you know, Tony says something, step up, Carmine, and be boss, you know? And Carmine kind of takes a beat and says, you never thought you'd mutter those words, would you? Because it's like mm -hmm. he knew, he knew what others thought of him. He was completely aware. So I think he was self-aware and I think he was aware of the situations and I think he was aware of other people's uh, difficulties and challenges. And I think people always wrote little Carmine off as the schmuck, the idiot, you know, brainless the second, you know. That's the way people really thought of him. And as the years go by, you'll find more and more people saying, he was a deeper character than people thought. And I, I might not even realize it as much at the time because I took Terry's advice and just, just said the lines, you know? Yeah, as you pointed out, and Aaron and I talk about this a lot in the, the shows that we did about The Sopranos, like Little Carmine and, and Johnny Sack are the p only two that I can think of that openly right. are like, I love yeah. my wife and I would do anything That's true. for her. And that kind of vulnerability that, like, I think is at odds with being a man in the world of The Sopranos, for sure. I'm not ashamed to say it. That beautiful, lovely woman made me cry, right? You know, I, I think I have that. I have that one. And we would sit, we'd talk, you know? Uh, and nobody else had those kind of relate. And you never saw him at the Bing. That's right. You know, he never was at one of those parties with, with the strippers on his lap or anything like that. Um, but for the purposes of the show, too, also the only character who really, you know, Tony's dad set up his life in the mafia right. for him by having him do his first hit when he was a teenager. And when, you know, you see Tony on the golf course with you, I get mm -hmm. the sense that he's jealous of you in so many different ways down to the fact that you order the ahi yeah. salad. He's like, well, I'm going to order the first. Cheese I don't steak. remember what he orders. Cheese steak. Philly cheesesteak. And I ordered this speared ahi and mixed greens. And he orders Philly cheesesteak yeah. and iced tea. And, uh, and Arnold Palmer. Because that's the brilliance yeah. of Terry Winter. Because it's another example of how insightful Little Carmine is. Little Carmine doesn't miss the fact that he orders, if, you, if there's an opposite to seared ahi and mixed greens, it's a Philly cheesesteak, right? but he orders an Arnold Palmer. I had ordered a nice tea, but the genius of Terry Winter and the insight of Little Carmine is Little Carmine tries to find common ground, even in the ordering of the meal, and he changes to an Arnold Palmer to kind of mirror Tony. Uh, and it's a simple line, but I remember in the moment thinking that's yeah. what I'm doing. 
what I'm doing here is reaching out to yeah. Tony, compensate for our different orders. You know, like the, you, when you mirror somebody to try to pull them in. But your character really seems to be the only one, at least in the world of The Sopranos guys, that said, I don't want to do what you do, Dad. When you talk about the little mellifluous box that you gave your dad right, in the dream. Right. And he's wearing a paper crown. Aaron and I went deep on this whole dialogue. We play, we yeah, play yeah, the, yeah, the scene paper crown. of the episode. Oh, it's um, a good one. Because you're the only person that kind of stood up to his own father on the show or just said, I, I want to work in Hollywood. I want to produce, I want to work on things that show the sacred and the propane, to quote Little Carmine. Well, he does say in that same scene, if I remember, um, there was a time I was obsessed with being boss. And that's what brings him to the whole story of his wife. So he wasn't completely immune to the, to being seduced by the power and the mm. money and the power and the power right. and the power, you know, uh, you know, for a while he was seduced by that until he realized what was more important. So I think that's even more interesting that he wasn't like that in the beginning of the show, but he comes to that realization, you know, cause as an actor, you always want to look for an arc. You know, you always want to look for uh, that mm -hmm. moment of awakening or, you know, some kind of rehabilitation or whatever. And uh, I think we, we see it there. He explains that, you know, what's important. He chooses being a Hollywood producer in lieu of <laughs> right. mob boss. Because it's, it's just like the same thing, yeah. really. Right. Because they're, <laughs> yeah. so, they're so, yeah. Well, he did have nine pictures under his subspecies. Don't forget that. It's a little combine. <laughs> I read that some of those lines were taken or inspired by George W. Bush, like the real things that he said. That was a David Chase thing. Because I remember, I think it was, I think it was season five after I'd done two episodes when I moved up from Miami, all of a sudden uh, they had me wearing cowboy oh, boots right. and a cowboy belt. And you don't really see it. Some scenes you see it, but I'm always wearing the cowboy belt. I wear, even in the Stagmar scene, I'm wearing one of those Western shirt with <laughs> yeah. snaps. And all those scenes, I'm wearing Western shirts, <laughs> under sport jackets with a cowboy belt, and I wore cowboy boots in every episode. And they didn't really focus right, on it. Right, it was just a little wink. It was just there. And that's the genius of The Sopranos, because even if you don't notice it, it adds a texture, you know, that each character had these, these elements to them that kind of set them off. And it gave, I think it just gave the whole show this, this uh, you know, it became a tapestry of not just one thing. And to have this mob character who's from New York living in Miami and now is wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy belt is just, I just think it's pure genius. And then from then they used, like the line, historically speaking, historical changes have come out of war. That's a direct <laughs> quote. And um, the other, what was the great George Bush? I'm all, often misunderestimated or something like that. He uses a word really? like that. Like, I don't remember what the exact one. I don't have that line, but he has one. But the line... The question is, why be successful as a boss like my dad was, and I will be even more so, but until I am, it's going to be hard to verify that I think it'll be more effective. God, you're good. It was originally, uh, the question is, why be successful in foreign policy as my dad was, and I will be, but even more so, until I am, it's going to be hard to verify that I think it'll be more effective. Wow. And you also were on another show that we've devoted entire multiple episodes to, which is Mad Men. Oh, yeah. When Don gets remarried to Megan and they move into this fancy high rise, you play their doorman. Jonesy. But your character to me is very significant as well, deceptively significant, because you, for listeners at home, Jonesy, give Sally the keys. <laughs> that's, the keys. That's... The episode where Sally sees Don and the neighbor in the apartment. Betrayal. OMG. 
what do we have here? A couple of high fashion models. I think that was my tag. Um, yeah, you know what? That's not unlike the scene in The Sopranos where I make peace between the families. And then I say, and your brother, Billy, whatever happened there. And it blows up the whole <laughs> between Philly. So this is kind of the same thing. Inadvertently, he just sets the the rest of it in motion. The war in the, between New York and New Jersey and the, and the disintegration of the of that Did marriage. Did Matt Weiner have a conversation with yeah, you about yeah. that at all? Or it's just like every role is its own. You don't have to. No, we didn't discuss that at all. No, never. Oh, really? Never. Yeah. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me until you just said it about that. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh my God. That, that made me think, well, I really did set something in motion. It hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me. I always look more deeply at the moment when Don's very drunk and he's asking me what it's like when you die. Cause my character right. had that heart attack and mm. died about seeing the light and all that. Um, I always wanted another scene there. I think there should have been a scene where Don comes down to the boiler room or something in the pot we're down there and we just, we just talk about life and death. I would have liked to have seen that scene. Have you ever specifically drawn from your memories of your father or personality traits for any roles that you've played? You know, I was thinking about that because I know I have. And my father, like I said, my father had a rhythm when he told stories, you know, my cousin Sam and I. I used that very much in that mellifluous scene mm -hmm. when I'm telling the story. That's very much my father's rhythm of telling a story. And I remember a cousin of mine, an older cousin of mine, called me or wrote to me. After, and somebody else, my sister's high school friend, uh, wrote to me after one of those scenes that you really reminded me of your father in that scene or something. In your creative life, in your work as an actor and a professional, have you ever had any father figures or mentors? Well, you know, I don't want to call him a father figure because he's not that much older than me, but Dan Loria has been very supportive. Of, you know who Dan Loria is? He played, well, he is like the ultimate father. He played the father on The Wonder Years. Oh, yeah, right? I know that guy. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's worked forever, and we've been friends for, you know, we've known each other for 40 years. We've done theater together. I did a play that he wrote. So we're pretty close, and he's always been very, very supportive of my work. And I remember years ago, we didn't even know each other that well. He auditioned for something at NBC or Warner Brothers or something. I remember he was in the middle of his audition, and he stopped. And he said, you know what? I'm not really right for this. You know who would be good for this? Ray Abruzzo would be good for this part. And that's like, who does that? Who does yeah. that? I don't know any other actor that I didn't get the part. <laughs> but had I gotten the part, this would really be a great story. But nonetheless, it's a good story about Dan, who's a very generous uh, giving actor and as giving as a, as a human being. I mean, I could not see Dan for a year. If yep. I needed him today for something, it would be like, you know, how soon, what time? Uh, so I have a lot of really yeah. good friends. I can't say that I have father figure mentors in the business so much. Friends count. Yeah, especially ones that are willing to guide you and not be afraid to tell you when you're off, not doing so well like a father might. Sure. And do you do that for anyone else? I do tend to mentor young actors as much as I can. And I always give them the advice to find something in life that you can do on your own that has nothing to do with the business that brings you some joy. Because if you could find yeah. those, otherwise this business will just eat you up. So if you could find something that's in your control, that maybe is creative or, or whatever in nature or whatever, that brings you joy and some happiness that isn't dependent on somebody else giving you permission to do it. Because that's the big thing about acting. You need somebody's permission to do it. Somebody has to say you. Uh, so 
you've got to find something in your life that you could just do on your own that brings you joy. What is that for you? You know, it, it, it changes. It often changes. You know, um, I lived on the beach for a long time, so I used to kayak and you know, often be surrounded by dolphins and stuff. And, you know, if you're in a yeah. kayak and there's a pot of dolphins around you and then they roll over and they give you the eye and it's like, you're not thinking about who did my agent call today? Right. You know, how did I, did I, did I get that last job? You're just in the moment and it's just, it's so powerful. And then through my friend, Wendy Malik, I told you before, I've now um, become quite involved with horses. That's so cool. So I'm around horses a lot and uh, I just go and I just sit with the horses and um, that's what that is for me now. So over the years, it's become different mm -hmm. things, you know. I was wondering about horses with you because you you have a really beautiful tribute to your father who he would have been a hundred a hundred this year or no 106 106 okay yeah um but you did a birthday post to him that was very moving and it's a, a photo of him as a little boy and he's dressed as a cowboy he's wearing a full yeah. cowboy outfit and I was Isn't wondering about about cowboys and horses and if there's a through line there for you well, it is. I, that's why I, when I found that picture, um, I guess I think I found that picture when my mother had passed away. I went through some, some old photos. Uh, it just amazed me because he was only about five or six years old. And he always said, you know, he, he was one of 10 kids. And at that point, they lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And his father, his father sold fish off a horse-drawn wagon. And uh, they had a horse because they sold fish. Not a horse that you ride, but a horse that just pulled the wagon with fish. And now here we are, we're, look, you, we're, we're talking, you know, with no wires or anything attached. And, you know, here they had the horse to pull the wagon in my father's lifetime. So that's pretty amazing. So we always had a connection to the horses. And I remember his horse's name was Jimmy. I always Jimmy. remember that day. Whoa, Jimmy. Yeah. So for, and, and my horse's name is Stuart. So I guess there's something about Jimmy just for, oh, Jimmy Stewart. Pie oh my. <laughs> that just oh that just occurred God. to me. Just Piamai just died I know, last week. I don't know if you know the real Piamai. I remember my father saying they never really had money for toys. They never had any real toys. So then that picture came up, and he's in full cowboy yeah. regalia. And it always, I wish I could ask him about that, but I did talk to a cousin of mine, and I think there was just a traveling photographer that had that stuff, and he would just put it on the kids, yeah, and and take the picture. But it is interesting. And then the Sopranos, I wear cowboy stuff. And now I am a cowboy. You're literally a cowboy. I know. All unrelated to each other, but it came full circle. Well, tell us about going back to your roots and Italy, because you've been talking about how important that is. Did you recently go on a pilgrimage of sorts? Yeah, I, I had a great, great experience. Um, it, it's pretty convoluted how I got there. I have a friend from Italy and uh, she lives here, but we, we were talking and somehow I said, I always wanted to go back to Sicily and go to the town where my grandfather was born. My grandparents were born and he originally sold fish there. He was a fishmonger in Sicily before he came over to America. And then he went back to Sicily and passed away there when my mm -hmm. father was young. So I always wanted to do that. And I, my father had gone when he was 58 years old that finally got to Sicily and found his grave. And I have a picture of him standing at the grave. So then when I was 58, I had this opportunity to go to Italy, which came in such a beautiful way. How, how much of the story do you want to hear? I could go right to the Sicily stuff or Keep how I ended going. up going to Italy. Keep okay. going. You this tell is a beautiful story because some of the listeners might want to check out this particular aspect of the story. I was at the gym one day and I was on the treadmill and there's this woman next to me I'd never met before. And somehow we just started chatting 
And she said, uh, you know, well, my father was a writer. And I said, oh, really? What's his name? And she said, oh, you never heard of him. And I said, well, what is it? And she says, John Fonte. I said, I couldn't believe it. I had just finished reading the book, Ask the Dusk, the day before. Because my nephew, who was going to school in Bologna at the time, started reading John Fonte. Now, John Fonte is an American writer, an Italian-American writer, but he's huge in Italy. Huge. Everybody in Italy knows John Fonte, but in America, not that many people know who John Fonte is. So this is his daughter. So she says, yeah, my father, John Fonte. I said, I can't believe it. I just read that book. And then she said, oh, it's interesting. I'm going, there's a festival every year in August in his honor in Italy. And, I, and she, she has no idea who I am. So I say, oh, really? Well, where is it? And she says, oh, you probably never heard of it. And I said, well, where is it? She says, well, it's in Abruzzo. And I said, well, it just so happens that <laughs> that's, my, that's name. my name. So we became friends. And then she found out that I was an actor. And we talked. And I think maybe two or three or four years later, I ended up being invited to go and read Fonte's work in Abruzzo at the oh festival. Oh, my God. So I found it fitting that my nephew, who first turned me on to Fonte, come with me. So we decided to plan Aww. a whole trip, which was going to culminate in performing Fonte in Abruzzo. But we decided, well, this is also a good time to go to Sicily. And my Italian friend who I referenced earlier knew a journalist who she told that I wanted to go to Shaka, which is the town in Sicily, to find my roots. So he wrote a little article that ended up in the Shaka newspaper. So they invited me Aww. to come to Shaka and be given this, this award this uh, Lakata Award for him, who's a famous poet, and the timing all scheduled beautifully. So we got to go, we Rome, we went to Palermo, and then we drove to Shaka, and we were, we're on the plane from Rome to Palermo. And uh, there's a guy wearing a Santa Barbara t-shirt while we're waiting to go on. The plane was delayed three hours because it's Italy. And um, <laughs> so we see this guy sitting across from us wearing a Santa Barbara, California sweatshirt. Now my nephew's from Santa Barbara. He lives in Santa Barbara. So here we are in Rome. So we finally get on the plane and I take the window seat. My nephew takes the middle and on the aisle is this very distinguished man with all dressed in black, his hair slicked back, reading glasses on the tip of his nose, my age about. And then on the aisle, the guy with the Santa Barbara sweatshirt gets on, sits there. So we ask him, are you from Santa Barbara? And he says, no, I am a chef. I work at a hotel in Santa Barbara. I am going home to get married. Oh, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Shaka. And we say, we're going to Shaka. And the gentleman on the aisle, the very distinguished man says, I too am going to Shaka. And then he says, are you Ray Abruzzo? I said, yes. He goes, I am reading about you right now. He had the newspaper with the article with oh. my picture. It turns wow. out he's an actor oh in God. Rome. Rome, as he says, it's Rome, because he does a lot of Shakespearean acting. <laughs> and his father, was like the town historian for Shaka, and he speaks English. This guy, he becomes our translator, our tour guide. The way it all worked out was just, just, Magic. you couldn't have planned this. And it's like, if we don't ask the guy about the Santa Barbara t-shirt, this doesn't come up, you know, and it's, it was unbelievable. And we're still good friends to this day. And when I went to find my grandfather's grave, he of course had to come. And of course, even the owner of the Airbnb had to uh. come with us too. And we went in separate cars and we all went to the, and we couldn't find the, my grandfather's grave because it was 1934 and the records are crazy. And they actually spelled the Bruto with two B's in the book and it's only one B and, you know, it was all that stuff. But I had that picture of my father standing by my yeah. grandfather's grave. 
and we're in the little booth at the beginning of the, the, the cemetery. The guy's looking through the book and he can't read. There's a lot of abruzzos. He can't find the specific one. And this little old man comes up and he sees the picture and he takes the picture from my hand. He goes, I know where this is in Italian. Turns out he worked in the cemetery and he recognized the gravestone and he leads us to my grandfather's grave, who died in 1934 at 58 years old, by the way. This was the day before my 58th birthday. And the picture of my father was up when he was 58. Okay. That's not here. I just there. got chill. So wow. we walk up to the thing and the owner of the Airbnb and my friend, um, they just dropped back and they let my nephew and I just go up to the gravestone. And it was so, so emotional, you know, this, cause the, the gravestone has a photograph on it, like a little cameo photograph of my grandfather. And it's the only photograph of my grandfather that exists. Oh, this is going to tie in beautifully. You guys are going to love this. The only way I know this picture, not the photograph, I know the picture is because I, my father had never finished high school. So after he retired, he got his, uh, his high school equivalency diploma because he wanted to go to Queens College to take some art classes. So he got his diploma and he went to Queens College to study art. And then they were going to Florence for a semester. So he went with them. In his first portrait class, he had to do a portrait. He did a portrait of his father from his father's passport photo. That was this, you know, tiny, tiny one-inch passport photo. That was the painting. And it was the only image I had of my grandfather was the painting that my father did. We get to the cemetery. It's that picture. <gasps> it, it's the same. It's his passport photo is what they used on the tombstone. From like the 30s? 19, died in 1934. So the passport photo was probably from 1903. Or wow. Everybody's just bawling because I'm holding my father's picture <laughs> and then I realized he painted this picture. And oh. it, it was all so emotional. And my friend uh, Alfonso Veneroso, he's the actor in, in Rome that became our tour guide. And we became friends and we met his father and they took us out to dinner. I mean, it was just, it was remarkable to be in Shaka. And he knew the history of it. There's this famous poet from Shaka and the festivals in his honor that they were giving me an award for. And he breaks into this poem. We're sitting on the dock where my grandfather used to sell fish. And Alfonso gets, goes into this poem and he does the whole thing in Sicilian. And then he translates it to, to English. And it's about the ocean and the earth. And he starts to tell us about how this, this land, it's in your blood, is coming up through the ground into your soul and he's and we're standing where my father's delivering you know my grandfather used to sell fish and the fishmongers are still there it was so remarkable and then uh so we met alfonso's father who looked like max van Sydow, who was the most handsome man very very <laughs> distinguished you know he was just it was just a magical evening at their home they, they invited us in and his father has since passed away but since then every time Alfonso goes to the cemetery to visit his parents, his, his father or his uncles. He brings flowers and he puts them on my grandfather's grave and he takes a picture. Oh my God. That is so special. Right? How crazy. No mistakes. And then we drive across Sicily and end up going up to Abruzzo where I perform the Fonte stuff. This is all part of the same trip. All because of the woman I talked to on the treadmill next to me, Victoria Fonte, who's John Fonte's the daughter. Gym. The gym. The universe is crazy yeah. and there is a real order. You want more? Yeah, give us more, more, more. So I perform at this festival. It's outdoors in uh, Torricella, uh, Poligna in Abruzzo. And I'm reading Fonte's work 
And there's a very famous musician, Vinicio Caposella, who's like kind of like the Tom Waits of okay. Italy. Check him out. His stuff is Vinicio Caposella. <laughs> I'm sure you'll remember. So while I read, he sits on the piano and he kind of just comps behind my reading, just lays down chords and kind of just improvises and read. And it's a full moon. It's outdoors, maybe a thousand people. The crowd goes berserk. So, mm. you know, and he drops to his knees when I finish and kind of does like, I'm not worthy wow. kind of thing. It was so moving. And then the producers came, they said, you've got to do another one. You've got to read another piece. They want another piece. I said, I haven't prepared another piece. I don't know another piece. They just hand me a piece of paper. They said, just read this. So now I'm going to read a Fonte piece cold, a portion of his book without even having looked at it. I don't oh. know it. And it's from My Dog Stupid. If you've never read it, it's a great short story. My Dog Stupid. It's, oh they God, just made a French <laughs> movie out of it, but it's a great, it's a great, oh, it's beautiful. So I start reading it. I'm going to paraphrase the first line, but it's like, it juts out into the Pacific like a giant woman's <laughs> breast. It is point doom. Now you have to understand, I'm in Abruzzo, Italy, but at that point I was living in Malibu. I could see point doom from my bed where I lived in California. And the first line from this Fonte short story is about Point Doom. And here I am, just random. They just pulled something out for me to read. It was so, that whole trip had all that kind of synchrony. Yeah, right? And coincidences and just everything yeah. just fell into play. Memories I'll, uh, you know, I'll never, never forget. I'm still, I still can't get over that Incredible. the first painting your dad ever made was that photo of his own father. Was he a good painter, your dad? He was, you know, he had, he had a kind of a, let's put it this way, a primitive style. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but he was so, he so wanted to express himself artistically. Like I said, you know, he had the soul of a performer or an artist somehow, and he just never really got to do it. Um, oh, I will tell you this great story. When he was in Florence studying, uh, he called me one Sunday. I called him Buddy. That's a long story because he can never remember anybody's name. So when I was in college, he'd call me or any of my friends. He'd say, hey, uh, um, hey, uh, Buddy. So I started calling him Buddy just to get back. And I'm like, I couldn't remember his name. And the name stuck. Even at his funeral, there were flowers, you know, Buddy. Buddy became his name because I was mocking him for not remembering anybody's name. So he's in Florence and he calls me. So I said, uh, so how, buddy, how's it going? He says, you know, the teacher complimented my work and she didn't say anything to any of the other kids. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was about six, 67 years old going with college kids. <laughs> any of the other kids. <laughs> and, and he had no idea what he was saying. It was just, he just really just shit. And she said nothing to any of the other kids. I'll, you know, I could hear him say it's oh. one of the... It's one of the great moments. It was just pretty precious. He saw himself as a kid. Yeah. I still feel like a kid or a child whenever I enter a new, a new situation, walk onto a set. Um, you know, I feel like everybody else knows more than yeah. I do. But then yeah. I learn that I know more and I tell Me them what too. to do. I become a jerk. No, I don't. <laughs> I was talking to someone about this the other day, like, I'm 39, but internally, I feel like the same as I did when I was like 14 or 13. Like, I feel like yes. I'm still, that's sort of like my worldview has not changed since I, I was 13. I might be, I, sometimes I'm 13, <laughs> sometimes I'm maybe still my terrible twos. But, um, uh -huh. but in general, I feel, and I, I was talking to an old friend of mine recently about this, and they were saying, you know, I still kind of have a young energy, you know, like yeah. I'm almost 68. You're 68, 68? And I've been I'm doing sorry, this. that's shocking. 
No, I'm only 67. Oh, I said, I'll be 68. Don't put it. <laughs> only 67. Uh, and this is all real. Yeah, I don't color my hair or anything. So I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, you still have this, this energy. And I, and I realize it's because I still, I still feel like I'm striving just like I did yeah. when I got out of college. You know, as an actor, you're always yes. looking for that, to get over that next hurdle. And it's not only just a gig, it's a hurdle. You know, you, you want that first gig. You can't get the first gig till you're in the union. You can't get in the union until you get your first gig. Then you finally get in the union. Oh, that's it. I'm done. Then you got to get your first guest star, you know, right. co-star part. Then you got to get a guest star part. Then you got to get your first recurring role. Then you got to get a, a series regular role. Then you got to get a series that stays on the air. And unless you're, you know, Tom Hanks or, you know, George Clooney or these guys, there's always a hurdle. So I think in a sense... That kind of keeps you, you know, the carrot's still in front of my nose. I don't feel any less desire to, to, to stay in it and, and grab that yeah. ring, you know? So I think that might be part of it. Although lately, the pandemic, I've relaxed from that desire and that need to do something. I'm kind of, every day about in the evening, you kind of get to that point, oh, my agent's in call today. And every Friday, it's like, oh, another week, I didn't get a job. That's been my life for 45 years, you know? And then the pandemic hit and I was like, that's for the first month I didn't get a job today. And I realized, well, wait a minute, nobody got a yeah. job today. And all of a sudden I kind of, it took yeah. me a while, but all of a sudden I just went, and I just decompressed and I relaxed. And that thing in the back of my head, that's always there. If you didn't get a job today, you're not working, kind of went away because there was no possibility yeah. of work. You know, yeah. I'd wake up and it would be a little easier that I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And I just heard an interesting thing on some podcast I was listening to last night about the early parts of your life and how the second party life after 40 about depending on who you are things change and uh, somebody put it in such a i wish i could remember the guy's name because he put it in such an articulate way um you know the first part of your life up until you're 40 you're putting all this paint on the canvas to, making yourself who you are and then he said the second part you're more like a sculptor and you're chipping away at everything mm -hmm. to discover who you really are you know and just stripping stuff away stripping stuff away and i go wow that's there's something really freeing about that. Yeah. So I'm going to try to hang on to that. I was talking about that recently, that the pandemic, you know, living in New York, working in media, similar, like where you, you're always chasing something. You're always comparing yourself yeah. to someone else that got the staff writer position. And why can't I be that? And I've screwed up my life by doing this when I was 23 or whatever, right. you know, the whole thing. But then, you know, the pandemic, at least for me, it was like, I can't tell myself a story anymore that everyone right, else has a right. better life right, than I do. Right, right. <laughs> no one else struggles as much yeah. as I do. Yeah, like, you know, I true. can't tell myself right. that story anymore. And it actually was really freeing yeah, in a way. Right. That's exactly the feeling I felt. It was freeing. But now I see everybody working. Everybody on Instagram is posting pictures of them on the set. I'm, <laughs> I'm right back there. Yeah. I could do that. Yeah, but it's a 23-year-old girl. I could do it. I could do it. I don't get a 23 I could have done that, <laughs> you know. It's the old, the old joke. Uh, how many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? One to do it, and I to say I could have done, done that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything else you'd like to share or say? Or well, I think if if somebody was lucky enough, like I was, to have a father that encouraged and 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 left you with some some values, you know, uh, that post you were talking about that I put on Instagram. I mean, I, I think about him. Every day, and it's so, very often it's in the simplest moment, like I, I said in, in that piece, um, you know, waving somebody in front of me in traffic, somebody that's trying to come in instead of speeding, you know, waving them in front. That was something my father did all the time. 
And, you know, and every time I do it, I feel him, you know, I just, it's just like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. And I remember him saying, what am I going to, where am I going to get there 10 seconds earlier? If I don't let him in. And it's such a simple gesture, you know? And I, of course, mm -hmm. I hate when the person doesn't wave and say thanks, but. Yeah, you need a wave. I think you wave. Anybody listening, if anybody lets Come you on, in, give, give them, them the wave. wave. Even if you have to roll down your window, give them the I'm wave. A monster. Have to. You it's have such to. an easy thing to make. It could really change somebody's day. If you're having a shitty day and you can't get in that lane and somebody waves you in graciously, you know, it's no skin off their back. It could change somebody's life. So that's the kind of thing. Uh, that my father always did, holding the door open for somebody. There's just so many things you could do that are easy to do. They don't take you anything and they could really make a difference in somebody's life. So that I get from my father. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think. <laughs>